Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Alberto Burry. My first guest is Emily Braun, the curator of Alberto Burry, The Trauma of Painting, a retrospective of the artist's career at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York. Burry, who was trained as a medical doctor and later became an artist, was a leader of a generation of Italian artists who emerged in the wake of World War II. This is the first survey of his work in the United States in 40 years. It's on view through January 6, 2016. The exhibition's tremendous catalog, I can't recommend it highly enough, was published by the Guggenheim. Braun is a distinguished professor at Hunter College and the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Among other books, she is the author of Mario Cerrone and Italian Modernism, Art and Politics Under Fascism, which was published in 2000 by Cambridge University Press. On the second segment, Arts Gowanus Executive Director Abby Subak discusses this weekend's Gowanus Open Studios. At a time when art fairs, essentially mobilized shopping malls of luxury goods, focus on commodifying art, events that open artists' studios to an interested public have become increasingly popular. We'll talk about it. But first, Emily Braun, after the break. The Getty's new exhibition, Power and Pathos, Bronze Sculpture of the Hellenistic World, on view through November 1st, brings together 50 of the most important bronzes from antiquity, from sculptures known since the Renaissance to spectacular recent discoveries from the depths of the sea. These innovative, realistic bronze works of physical power and emotional intensity have been dubbed a can't miss by the LA Times. A catalog of the same name brings the exhibition into your home. To learn more, visit getty.edu. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Anya Galaccio on view at its downtown location through November 1st. For this exhibition, Anya Galaccio worked with students to build an unlikely technology, a 3D printer for clay to render a version of the iconic national monument Devil's Tower. Galaccio joins a primal art material, clay, with a futuristic innovation, the 3D printer. With this effort, Galaccio insinuates the slow build of geologic time with the immediacy of 3D printing. For more information, visit mcasd.org. And we're back. Emily Braun, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. You write that Burry did injury to the very being of painting, if only to hold it together in the end, involving the viewer in what was then, in the 1950s, an unfamiliar and jarring sequence of sensory, emotional, and cognitive responses. So if, if an Alberto Burry emerged out of a Yale MFA program, we would say that he was reacting against the history of painting, but he did not, not even close. So my, my question is, why did an army officer and medical doctor choose painting and art as his way to respond to World War II and its aftermath as opposed to something else? Why did he choose painting as opposed to, say, literature? Or... Or, or even staying in medicine and finding a way to address the aftermath of the war and what it did to Italy through the field in which he was trained? Well, that would entail, of course, continuing to devote himself to healing humanity and to repairing bodies. Uh, I think his whole world was turned upside down by the war. I think there was a degree of anger and shame. He himself said that he was fed up in the camps by the way he was treated and voluntarily 
actually he himself said that uh, he was not allowed to practice medicine at Hereford, which was against the Geneva Conventions. But some of his peers later reported that he abandoned medicine out of quote-unquote disgust for humanity. So we'll never know the truth. I think the closest we'll get to it is the fact that as he began to take up brush and paint while at Hereford in the years of, of 1943 through 1946, he began Hereford, Texas, where he was interned as a POW, that he began to find some solace, as did many others, in art. We could, if we had a specialist here in art therapy or uh, someone from who's worked closely with veterans, I'm sure that they would attest that there is a tremendous therapeutic role in working with materials, handling them, braiding, knotting, sewing, stitching, all these things. I don't want to overread that, but he himself said that painting got him through the misery of everything that surrounded him. So already it was a vehicle for expression for him in which he could clearly uh, vent and uh, represent what the world was going through in the general sense, Europe in particular, uh, humanity in an even larger universal sense, Italy as a nation, and he himself personally. But I just want to go back to that comment that you slid in there, which I thought was rather wry and interesting about if this if you were a recent MFA from Yale. So I think what you meant by that was a kind of framework in which art students today are, are addressing the death of painting or the constant dying of, because it never seems to die. Is that what you were referring to? Yeah, and the way that, you know, artists now are trained or encouraged to kind of live within their medium, whereas Burry very much, very much lives within the world of his time through his work. Absolutely. In other words, he's not all caught up in, to use that overused word, discourse of modernism. Yeah, yeah. He is uh, taking the materials in front of him and working with them in a way that comes natural to him through manual skill and dexterity. But also he's very aware of the longer history of art, which I think uh, for those of us who work on the modern period, we tend to forget that modernism isn't just art about art of the modern period, but has a long history. And I think a lot of painters are very aware of the centuries of the Western tradition, of course, we're talking about. And Buri's best friend was a paintings restorer. He was surrounded by studios of, of framers and gilders and restorers, and of course, the museums and the frescoes that surrounded him. He was very aware of the craft of painting, those preparatory layers, the different grounds, how you put that red bowl, that's the red clay, B-O-L-E, down before you adhere the gold leaf. So when he's breaking through these grounds and attacking the surfaces of painting, it's with a deep knowledge of the actual substrata. I was of a generation that was raised on Clement Greenberg's high formalist modernism, which, of course, we've been taking apart for decades now. The Europeans, that's completely absent from, from them, right? They, they, they're not aware of that. They, they were not reading that, those things in the 50s. So they're, they're coming to an expression of modernity and what modern art could be from a, a very different uh, framework. We're going to get in a little bit to the way in which Burry engages with six or seven centuries of Italian art. One of the strengths of the catalog, one of the things that you can really only do in a catalog is is cite images in which Burry engages or may have engaged in a way that, that you, you, know, you really couldn't in an exhibition, given that frescoes tend to be where frescoes are. 
But I want to I want to hit on one other bit of Burry's personal history because it's a part of his biography that comes up again and again in your catalog essays, kind of throughout them really, and that's Burry's medical background. He was a doctor who who gave up medicine, of course, after World War II. And it, throughout your essays, you posit that there are a number of ways in which his medical background informed him once he turned to art making. What are some of those ways? One of them is the fact that he would have a university training in the sciences and organic chemistry, uh, particularly physics and, of course, biology. And I had the privilege of working with Carol Stringari, the chief conservator here at the Guggenheim. As you know from the catalog, we did an in-depth study of all of Buri's series. And as a conservator, she's trained in the sciences as well. So she actually picked up on a lot of things that he would have seen under the microscope, uh, vacuoles, you know, the bubbles inside of cells, mold growth that actually looks like what rickets look like under a microscope. And he did his research study as a medical student on rickets, which is a, a bone disease that deforms the bones. So she had a predisposition through her training to see what he would have been aware of. I initially came to it with the more surface layer mechanics of what a doctor could do, right? opening up the flesh, suturing, using forceps to peel back the exterior of the sacs or the plastics as he does, as if it were actually flesh or skin. And I think what the bigger picture that emerged, because for we've known since the get-go from the 50s, when Buri first exhibited in the United States, it was mentioned that he was a doctor in the POW. That was no secret. And Criticism in the 50s talked about the fact that he was a doctor who was working with wounds in his pictures. But I think the bigger picture that's emerged now is how the pictures themselves, the surface are, are like skins and membranes. And he's really working with the body of painting in an intimate way that presages feminist work, if you will, of the 60s and post-minimalist approaches to the supports and surfaces of what a painting is that turns it into membranes and skins. So that I found was revelatory. That came out of our, our study of, of the work, not just wounds suturing what you can see under a microscope, but that he's really configuring a lot of these picture paintings as bodily images in a purely abstract idiom. You made the point that Burry's interest in touch and tactility is is key, and that you link that to two things: one, his medical background, and two, the Montessori method. How so? Well, Marie Montessori's method of teaching children, and she began with developmentally delayed children, working with them, and she found that they made great cognitive leaps if she re-educated their sensory discrimination skills. And then, of course, that was eventually transferred to a regular childhood education. And uh, she believed in building up cognitive development from the bottom up. So you do begin with the senses, including her sort of tactile tablets, which had various degrees of sandpaper. So the young children would be blindfolded and they would feel the different levels of relief of sandpaper, different gradations of smooth to rough. And the hands are seen really as the pathways to the brain in, in such a way that enliven the whole bodily experience and our awareness of ourselves in the world. And of course, then in tandem with vision. Buri's mother was an elementary school teacher, so she was likely schooled in the Montessori method. She, in fact, knew it. And manual dexterity was emphasized from an early age. So there was a whole approach to 
bodily experience to sensory experience that was a building block towards a formative education. And he's bringing that to bear. He's bringing palpable touch, how a surgeon, how a doctor feels beneath the surface from the skin. Doctors trained to do that. So that's another aspect of his medical training, I think, that allowed him to manipulate the surfaces of his burlaps and the plastics, to embed things underneath them, to feel the picture as a kind of living, breathing tissue with which he could work. And the tactility theme, which is so central to the work, and it's fascinating, really. I want to put the viewer into the situation of not just looking, but feeling. And touchy-feely would be a great phrase if it weren't so corny and kitschy. But the, the, work, the work, as you stand in front of it, and you've seen some of it, Tyler, really draws you in and you do project that sense of the hand over the surface or the materials rubbing against you. And this tactility creates in the viewer a more visceral and full experience of interpreting the artwork. That tactility extends not just from the pieces made out of burlap or maybe the pieces in which we think touch is almost inviting. That extends to the welded iron sheet works where there are little bits pulled back that would be quite sharp to the touch. It's it yeah, it's 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 a fascinating part of the work. It's yeah, just it, it's there from the get-go, the tactility. Yeah. It's even there in the embedded monochromes. So the, the first series of the Katrami of the black tars, they are often made by just erasing with tar and pitch and black enamel paint layers of of paint underneath that were formerly figurative paintings that he obliterates, that he blacks out. So when you see these black monochromes or partial black monochromes, there are ridges there are drips, they're already uneven and bumpy and rough and patchy. So that tactility is, is a theme that is there from the, his very beginnings as an artist. Burry's second major body of work, and, and I apologize in advance because throughout this week's show, my um, inability to pronounce Italian words will be the subject of much mirth, but the Mufa pieces? Mm-hmm. That sounds Am I close? Like Mufa, that sounds... <laughs> So not only uh, do, do these pieces have kind of that, that, that kind of service we were just talking about, but they are dominated by the color white and then secondarily black and red. These are three colors that recur in Bury throughout. Why are these three colors the three that seem to interest him most? That's a good question. I think the on the one level they relate uh, in the history of art and the craft of painting, the white very much the preparatory layer, be it the intonaco of gesso, or the, the intonaco of the fresco ground, the first layer that's put on the wall uh, before a fresco painting begins, or the gesso grounds, both the sotile gesso, the subtle fine gesso layer on a panel painting or a canvas, or a rougher secondary layer of gesso. White is the foundational color of Western art, therefore be it on a fresco or a panel or an easel painting. Uh, so in that, in those strata, those layers of painting that he's uncovering and drawing out, uh, white is uh, is the foundational one. Red has allusions to the lifeblood of the picture, to blood, to wounds, and also to, again, in the history of painting, the the clay, the red clay layer that's applied before gold leaf is impressed upon it, and then black. I think Buri was always attracted to black because he was determined to show the depths of black and the luminosity of black. And these are difficult colors for artists to work with, if you think about it. He's not interested in the intermediary 
uh, secondary or tertiary colors. Uh, they're dramatic colors. And also somehow intuitively, along with the ochre of his burlaps and the ochre of the fiberboard that he would use with the Celotex, these are colors that he was able to find in large measure in prefabricated materials down the line. So the, these these white works, uh, the Mufa pieces, are kind of 51, 52, 53-ish. The first work in the catalog in the show dates to 1949. It's from the Vatican Museum of all places. I'm sure there's a story there. And the, the reason I'm bringing that up, that, that the first work in the show dates to 49, is uh, it, early in Burry's, I don't know if career is the right word, but early in his post-war interest in being an artist, I guess, he travels through Europe in, in, in 48 and 49, visiting artist studios and presumably just looking a whole lot, doing a whole lot of looking. Who does he meet and what does he learn from that trip? From the trip to Paris, he meets Miro, probably uh, Dubuffet. We, we know that he visited Juan Miro's studio, also that he met with Dubuffet. And he would have been uh, visiting the Galerie René Durin, where he would have seen works by Fautrier as well. Whether or not he visited Giacometti's studio, I don't know. But he was there in the company of Sandra Blow, who was a young British art student. They They became lovers and they traveled up there together. He saw quite a lot. Now, let's keep in mind that in Rome in the post-war period, there were also exhibitions popping up everywhere in various galleries uh, showing the works of Clay and Miro and others. What I'm not sure about is when he would have seen Kurt Schwitter's works and in the flesh as opposed to reproduction. He might have seen those in Paris. I don't know. We have no documentation of that, but he clearly would have been aware of those as well. There's some spreads in the catalog in in, in which both visually and textually you seem to be making a case that Miro was really key, really fundamental. We'll try and show on the website the two-page spread on pages 116 and 117 where you show 48 Bury, one of the tar pieces, and a 1929 Miro, which is on tar paper, and kind of visually anyway comparing their elements. Their compositions aren't, aren't, aren't the same, but certainly kind of the use of non-representative elements and shapes is similar. Are, are you suggesting that Miro was kind of the beginning for him? Yes, I think Miro was probably the strongest influence, aside from Dubuffet, whose work with tar and pitch he would have seen. Of course, Dubuffet used it as a background, not as an entirely abstract picture the way that Bori would. I think Miro was essential in in three ways. One was that uh, Bori probably was aware of Miro's use of tar paper. And secondly, Miro did those beautiful paintings on which Anne Umlin at the moment did a fabulous show a few years ago of using the raw canvas onto which he had these lyrical swaths of white paint and a black doodle here and there. So Miro was already drawing out the naturalness of the raw canvas as a painterly surface and Buri would take that even further with the sax. And then Miro's squiggly calligraphy I think Buri picked up on as well and you see those lines, those traceries in Buri's thread work in many of the sacks. Paul Clay has also been cited as an influence on Buri's work or something he would have looked to, but I think that the Miro influences and affinity is stronger. Miro was an artist too who famously declared, I cannot remember the exact phrase, but that he was out to assassinate painting. He did this by incorporating disparate non-art materials into his collages. And 
Buri, to a certain extent, is continuing on that tradition, a long-standing tradition amongst the modernist avant-garde to attack or destroy painting. But as I've argued in the catalogue in the post-war context, that idea of play has changed. It's really a moment where painting has to be salvaged and not just attacked. That Ann Umlin show was titled Painting and Anti-Painting, 1927 to 1937. It was at MoMA in 2008, and listeners were probably noticing that that show keeps coming up on this podcast every few weeks because it was a great show. <laughs> we talked about it when both Anns, Temkin and Umland, were on talking about Picasso's sculpture a few weeks ago. And just, just seeing as you mentioned that that famous Miro quote, I think that Anne Umland's essay in the Painting and Anti-Painting catalog really, really goes into to that that quote. I think there's, an, an, if I remember right, an extended discourse. That's correct. And Jim Coddington, the conservator at MoMA, also contributed to that catalog as well. That's right. Well, let's talk about burlap for a moment. Probably Burry is best known in the United States for the paintings he makes that involve burlap. I think that's most likely because the Art Institute of Chicago has one or two, and they've often been on view there in the last decade or so. Burlap is related to canvas, but it is not canvas, or at least not canvas as painters would use it. How did Burry come to burlap when he did? Before I answer that question, Tyler, the Art Institute does not have a sacco as a, a mufa, and a mufa that was donated by Studs Turkle, Burry's brother-in-law. Speaking of radio hosts. And their sisters married each that's other. That's right. And uh, I'm sorry, their sisters. The sisters <laughs> not. Sisters. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then they have a beautiful bianco, which is actually what we have on the cover of the catalog. So they don't have a sacco proper. So let's return to the question about burlap. Buri first encountered gunny sacks, burlap gunny sacks, probably in the war arena of war where they were used as sandbags and as tent material and uh, for a variety of other purposes, including tarpaulins. But he first used it with regard to painting in the Hereford, Texas prisoner of war camp. In the spring of 1945, the supplies at the POW camp dwindled for a variety of reasons. Buri, who was used to painting on regular canvas, went into the kitchen canteen and retrieved from the mess a used burlap bag. And he stretched that over a strainer or a stretcher, and then he prepared it with a white ground. So he used it as a traditional support for a canvas, and then he painted one of his figurative paintings over it. So that was his first use of it as a material for a painting, and artists had used burlap before. Leger used a very raw and rough canvas akin to burlap. Burisaki, however, are really uh, using burlap for what it is, no longer pretending to be a support for a painting, but the warp and the woof of the, of the jute itself becomes the painterly ground and support. And it's key, however, that to realize that people would have seen this burlap material and, and seen it as being akin to a traditional finer linen of a canvas. That's why Cesare Brandi, the, the Italian art historian and critic, so evocatively said that these are unpainted paintings. A term, by the way, which is in vogue right now amongst artists and critics in 2015, unpainted paintings. As far as I know, this was first used with regard to, to Buri by Brandi in 1963, in reference to the sacks of a decade earlier. They are unpainted paintings or raw paintings or paintings in their prenatal state, as Brandy also called it. So there is this obvious allusion to the finer traditional artist canvas. At the same time, 
They're directly burlap bags that were used for purely utilitarian reasons to carry grain and beans and flour and sugar. So we're aware of this, of its utilitarian function now being adapted no longer as a solid integument or skin or supportive painting. He often patchworked together the support. It's not even a single piece of burlap, but several weakly and meekly brought together. One way he brings them together often is by sewing them, joining them with thread. You mentioned you, you referenced this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to draw it out. You know, if this if these were pieces from the United States from the mid '60s on, we would draw the obvious link to feminist practice. No such link exists for Burry in 1953. Was he sewing or using thread to join pieces of burlap simply because that was the way to do it, or is there a reference or meaning there that was important to him? It was a way to do it, to construct a, a support out of piecemeal pieces. I think he also saw it as an act of repair. It comes down also to muscle memory. I mean, he's used to stitching skin together, and I'm sure that there was that deep familiarity psychologically, physically, mechanically as he stitched those pieces together. Some of the stitches are suture stitches. Some are back stitches and whip stitches. Uh, he has a machine in the studio, too, a sewing machine that he uses for certain running stitches as well. He is so clever, though, that we don't know sometimes. I mean, we know in many cases that those are his stitches. However, he also incorporates seams that have been pre-stitched or hem stitches, for example, on the edges of shirts that he incorporates or tablecloth linens. On the objects that are sackcloth or burlap, there is occasionally lettering, occasionally... I don't know, some ink or, or dabs of paint. But for the most part, when he's making work using burlap, there is not paint on the burlap. There might be paint under it. It's a slight overstatement to say that before the sackcloth paintings, he's he's painting on the surface of, of things, and after them, he does it enormously less. Do you have a sense of why he's painting less from about this point forward? He doesn't need paint anymore. He's, he has his unpainted painting. He's using the materials to, and the processes to create coloristic effects, effects of chiaroscuro or light dark modeling. He doesn't need to do illusionistic textures anymore with, with the brush or, or the pencil or the charcoal. He can, he can have that with the material itself, either manually manipulated or with a needle and thread or eventually with, with a torch and heat. So the material and its surfaces, that's the breakthrough. That's correct. And I think it's important to keep in mind, and one of the things I hope this show uh, will draw out, is that at the same time he's working with the burlaps, he's working with linens, with household linens, found fabrics, dirty rags that were once linens or pieces of clothing. Uh, sometimes he incorporates whole pieces of, of, of a shirt or nightgown in one beautiful painting that we have for this exhibition. And these linens, he's also stitching together or using the pre-existing seams and edges uh, to create major lines of the composition. And these white linens have a very different effect than the sake, which are rough and ochre. The whites, you see that they've been stained. Sometimes it looks like there's tie lines. They've been wiped with, looks like they've been wiped with sweat or with paintbrushes. And they have a very different tenor, a very different feeling than the burlaps. And we have a whole ramp of these whites in, in the exhibition. They're very beautiful. So speaking of the, the, the Saatchi, the burlap pieces, at one point in one of your essays, you compare them more directly to then-contemporary 
Italian cinema than to the history of art and painting, which is just an awesome moment in the catalog. It's totally, I, I never didn't see that coming. Could you tease out for listeners what that comparison is, how you got there, why it sticks? Absolutely. I think that Buri's work is so different from his peers who are painting, be they abstract expressionists or tachis or uh, informal artists, that this there was something neorealism about it. Realism in the material fact of things, yet this tension between the, the abjectness, the poverty, these cast-off ugly things at times, stained, warmed, imbued with poverty, yet at the same time imbued with grace and a certain degree of humility and absolute refinement. And this jungle of what you quoted earlier as cognitive and sensory and emotional responses, to me signaled neorealist cinema. And particularly how it was described by André Bazin, the French film critic, in the early, I think Bazin's writing on neorealist cinema came out in 52, but we'd have to check that. And I had been watching, as someone who works in Italian art, the cinema of Rossellini for many years, also De Sica and Visconti. And there's such a similarity in the feeling of these works in the historical moment, a moment in which Italy is grappling with its past. It's been absolutely devastated economically, always was a poor nation, but things have been reduced to rubble and to, to things have been rented, gashed, opened up. And the new realist cinema is a cinema that focuses on the poor and the miserable, as Cesare Zavattini, one of the key screenwriters of the period, said. And the Burisaki are about the poor and the miserable, yet, as with the films of Rossellini, there is a dignity about this common humanity that is being filmed. And if the films themselves, the filmic quality of Visconti de Sica and Rossellini is, is, is elliptical, it's bringing together reportage, documentary fact, like a burlap bag in Buri's picture. And it's this combination of the aesthetic and the documentary that Buri's paintings and neorealist cinema have in common. They're slow. They're meditative. They're about common, humble things. I wanted to add something else. I think that's important about your question having to do with um, my bringing together neorealist cinema and, and Buri's work. And that is that within the history of Italian cinema, there is a, a conscious pictorialism. So these filmmakers themselves are often framing scenes and including actual paintings in their films uh, that show how where they are of the history of Italian art and the history of contemporary art. So there, it, it's not only that Buri's art shares with neorealist cinema, it's that neorealist cinema shares with historical with art history in so many ways. Uh, so these are artists in both mediums who are who are very aware of paintings and composition and, and the history of art. So I think that's very key too. And then Buri's work is actually cited in many ways. You can look at Pasolini films later and Antonioni films later, which is no longer the season of neorealism proper. And you can see many frames that look like a Buri even though it's not one of his pictures hanging in the background, the whole thing has been staged, a, a, a wall, a, a heap of detritus, a peeling wall, a kind of material monochrome, 
so it's fascinating to see the back and forth between painting and cinema in this period. It even exists in the catalog as a back and forth between painting and cinema, because in, in one five-page stretch of the catalog, you give us the detail of a Caravaggio painting, a still from an Antonioni film, and then as you turn the page, you get another detail from a different Caravaggio painting. And one of the, the fun things about the catalog is that throughout it, you you give us examples of how you think Burry might be, or in fact was, looking closely at hundreds of years worth of Italian and, and Catholic art, to the point where I found myself hoping someday for a whole exhibition about that, although I'm not really quite sure how that would work. In 1956, I think, Burry begins making work out of wood veneer, and introduces not just a new surface, but introduces a new action upon the surface, and that is that he, he, he um, makes use of combustion of fire. And that's something that stays in the work for a long time in one form or another, such as welding. Why, why is it he brings fire in? What was the attraction of bringing the result of, of fire into the work? Why he brings it in is an interesting question. I don't know exactly why. We know that he traveled to the oil fields in the Abruzzi regions to work on an article uh, with a journalist about oil extraction in the petroleum industry. And from that point, in around 1954-55, he begins to burn papers. And uh, there's an obvious parallel with that is collage where they tear and drop the pieces of paper on the paper uh, on another support. For example, I'm thinking of Jean Arp's uh, squares arranged according to the laws of chance. But Buri ups the ante, if you will, in this idea of hazard or chance because he's burning papers and letting them fall and burn out on a, a support on the table. And he is fascinated by fire and he then takes it to to the level of wood veneer and then eventually plastic. And I think this is a question we've asked ourselves. Did Buri just get tired of the material and approach and therefore just change? Or was there something that he saw that that prompted him to want to make that change? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but he was endlessly invented and he was an inveterate experimenter. And that I think is part of his scientific background as well. He was willing to play with jars of different resins and shellac and epoxy glues and also to see how those could be used with his combustion as well. Did, did it fireproof things? Did it increase the level at which something would burn or make it burn faster or create different kinds of colors once it hit the flame? I wonder if you have a couple of favorite pairings or places where you find uh, Renaissance or even pre-Renaissance paintings that are examples of things that may have been important to Burry or ideas or passages within certain paintings off of which he may have riffed? Well, certainly there are direct, that is, Burry's never completely direct, but there are clear citations of paintings by Piero della Francesca, particularly the Madonna del Parto or the Madonna of the Parturition, which is located in Monterchi, a small town uh, a short way away from Buri's hometown of Città di Castello. And we know that he used to bicycle up as a teenager and young man to visit the fresco. There is a, uh, that composition, the Madonna is framed by a kind of symmetrical curtain that's parted above her. And that same form is used in several of Buri's work, most notably in the ferro, the iron from St. Louis. 
He also emulates, you can see he loves bunching up and ruching materials in a way that is echoing the massive, heavy model drapery of Quattrocento and Cinquecento painting, Cinquecento in particular, 1400s. And in addition, there's another aspect of the Madonna del Parto, which Buri plays off of, which is the lacing in her dress, both the center seam and the side. There's like a gap seam, and then they're cross-laced down. And you see him repeating that lacing in um, a beautiful black horizontal sacco in the exhibition. So in the quality of the, the, the draping of the fabric that he's actually doing physically, no longer rendering illusionistically, he's paying homage to the, the virtuoso modeling of, of Renaissance painting, and then in specific citations of Piero della Francesca in particular. To go back to your question about the colors, red, black, white, and also gold, the red, black, and, and gold you also see in the very large hanging wooden crucifixes uh, that are in Santa Croce or Santa Maria Novella. And not the small ones on altar pieces, but these large painted crucifixes. And those are the dominant colors in those as well that he would have seen. And then, of course, Caravaggio, if I may say, we, we talked a lot about Piero, but if we if we jump ahead to, to Caravaggio's work, um, who was undergoing a tremendous revival in the 1950s under the scholar Roberto Longhi, who was Pasolini's uh, teacher, Buri's work in its own time was compared to Caravaggio that, for example, the painting of, of the Madonna with the peasants praying to her with their filthy feet sticking right out at the face of the viewer. So there, that was an affront in its own time. It was shocking. People found it sacrilegious in the same way that Buri's stained sacks just confront you. There were parallels made with that. In the 1960s, Burry makes pieces out of plastic, which are which is uh, wrapped around, if you will, an aluminum framework. And these pieces are, as we see in installation shots in the catalog, hung from the ceiling. Two questions about that. One, where did Burry get the idea to hang pieces from the ceiling where you could circumnavigate them? This is something that is still an open question, though I think we're coming close to, to finding the correct answer. It's probably owed to James Johnson Sweeney, who had the habit of suspending not only his transparent pictures, but other artists' oil on canvases in mid-room. If you look back at installation photographs from the Houston Museum of Fine Arts, where Sweeney was director after he was the director at the Guggenheim, you'll see him hanging Soulange, even Miro canvases in the center of the room. And he probably got that. He probably became adventurous in that way from working with Kiesler or knowing Kiesler's installations. So then it became particularly adapt to do so for Bury's transparent plastics. And in Bury's retrospective in, in the Albright Knox Gallery, for example, they're the only works that are suspended. If you look at them, uh, the installation shots from the 63 retrospective in Houston, which Sweeney organized uh, for Bury, several, not just the transparent, but other solid uh, burlaps are also suspended. And there's a picture of that in the catalog uh, of both the Albright Knox install and the Houston install, and we'll try to have them on manpodcast.com. Uh, that being said, that Buri then went on specifically to hang his plastics in the center. So if you go to his museum in Città di Castello, the only picture which is suspended midway, uh, that is in the middle of the room, is a transparent plastic for obvious reasons. It's a fantastic statement about colorless monochrome, see-through painting. I'm always reminded, of course, of Duchamp's large glass, which is in the Philadelphia Museum of Art, where Duchamp first makes that move, right, to do a picture. 
and and to to begin to make us consider the metaphor of a painting as a window through which we look into deep space and then he takes that literally and creates a window pane throughout the catalog you show us the the verso side of mini burries which is cool because that's something about which I'd always wondered but had never seen. Did Burry himself install his paintings other than these, these, you know, as we just discussed, so that viewers could see the, the backside? Never. I don't, I can't name one painter who did that. And Burry certainly didn't. Burry was very loath to give interviews. And he once invited a reporter in in the early 60s to watch him making a, a plastic, transparent and he said, now I'm not, you're not here so that I can give you any recipes. I'm not going to do that. So he was, I wouldn't say secretive, but he was protective of how, how he made things. And um, he did not show them from the back, no. So near the end of Burry's career, he becomes interested in, in the idea of, of earthworks, of land art, which I guess probably more than we should, we think of that as being an American thing, although it must be noted that most of the Americans, except for maybe Dennis Oppenheim and Michael Heiser, who were interested in earthworks, kind of got their start making them in Northern Europe. So with, I'm going to ask a question about the earthworks in a moment, but before I, I do... I wonder if Burry ever thought about his paintings as landscapes or as referencing landscape, because if he did, then his leap to earthworks would make a little more sense. Right. Burry did not discuss the imagery of his paintings at all because he said very little about about them. Contemporary reviewers, however, in the early 1950s, when they were first shown in the United States, made reference to them, to the Saki as aerial landscapes or topographical landscapes. Fairfield Porter, for the artist who was also a critic, uh, referred to them that way. So, And certainly with the mufe, those muck-coloured uh, canvases with the pumice stone ground up and mixed with vinyl or polyvinyl acetate emulsion ro- rosins to make them look like muck and guck, those um, actually create landscapes on the surface of the picture. But he did not himself refer to any of the works as, as landscapes, simply did not speak about his, his paintings. The Grande Creto di Gibellina, the big white Creto of Gibellina, Sicily, is the only earthwork that Buri did. It's a 16-acre piece. We'll have images of it on the website, including the Google Earth image, which is wild. <laughs> <laughs> It's a remarkable piece. Uh, I encourage you and your listeners to to make a pilgrimage to see it. And you can also see the temples of Selenunte and Segusta nearby. So um, it gives you a sense of, of, of the monumental and different historical moments. So that piece is seemingly obviously related to his credo pieces of, of the mid-1970s. Was it his idea, that his intent, that they should be as visually related as they seem to be, or was he going at a different spatial idea with with the piece in the land? Well, he had been working with the Creti in the 1970s, and in 1979, he went down at the invitation uh, of the mayor of Gibellina to to go to the new town that had been built several miles away from the old town of Gibellina, which had been devastated in an earthquake in January 1968, along with several other towns along the the Belice Valley in western uh, Sicily. And uh, the mayor had constructed, had been the force behind the construction of the new town after the citizens, those who survived, had been living in uh, tents and makeshift housing for many, many years. And in this new town, they 
they commission different artists, such as the sculptor Consagra, for example, to, to create freestanding sculpture in demarcated areas of, of this urban plan, which I have to say has generally, the consensus is that it was a total failure. You have this, your worst nightmare of modernist urban planning. Rudy came to visit it. He saw the artworks that had been placed already, and he said, take me to the site of the old town. They brought him there, and he walked the ruins, apparently by the light of the moon as well, and he said, if you want me to make something for Ghibelline, I'm going to make it here on the ruins. And it was one of these, not it, there was no pre-planning. I guess it was an intuitive response that if he was going to do something here, it was going to be create these furrows, these fissures that were the streets themselves, more or less, of the old town. And therefore, it was going to resemble in, in monumental scale and in color, a white monochrome, one of, one of his creti. And they basically macerated the ruins and then created retaining walls around them and then poured them over with white concrete to create a, a monumental white shroud that occupies the same space on the, on the hillside as the, the town did that was devastated. I went there and I also went to one of the neighboring towns that had also been devastated where the ruins still remain. They've been there since 1968. They're enclosed by fences and packs of wild dogs. It looks like a bombing site. Buri felt that, uh, and the mayor agreed with him, that that's what Gibellina would have looked like in 1979 when he was there, and it should not be left like that. And the best way to commemorate these ruins was to create this this shroud that you, you walk through. So the, the, what are the fissures or the cracks in his Creti painting now become the, the little streets, the little alleyways. Alleyway is not the right way to describe it. They are walkways through the landscape, through the town. And it's quite extraordinary. And of course, the experience of the site changes, as with all land art, according to the climate, the season, the time of day. And you, you move through it, you get a sense of, of what was lost and, and what was devastated. I've often said, and I'm not the first one to make this remark, that I'm reminded of Stephen Eisenman's monument in memory of the European Jews, uh, the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin. The the piece was made between 1985 and 89 and covers 16 acres. Emily Braun, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tyler. Support for The Man Podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting COTA, Digital Excavations in African Art, opening on October 16th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 Kota reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by Rampant Interactive, St. Louis-based software designers and the Pulitzer's first game developers in residence. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Mark Rothko, a retrospective, featuring more than 60 paintings by this abstract expressionist pioneer. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, which traces the development of Rothko's signature style. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org Rothko for more. International Pop at the Dallas Museum of Art chronicles the global emergence of pop in the 1960s and early 1970s. While previous exhibitions have primarily focused on the dominance of pop activity in New York and London, 
This exhibition examines work from artists across the globe who were confronting many of the same radical developments. International pop navigates a fast-paced world packed with bold and thought-provoking imagery, revealing a vibrant cultural period shaped by widespread political revolution. International Pop is on view October 11th to January 17th. Visit dma.org for more information. Welcome back. My next guest is Abby Subak, the executive director of Arts Gowanus. Gowanus Open Studios Weekend kicks off on Friday, October 16th. Over 300 artists will open their spaces to the public, and Arts Gowanus has planned a series of special events, tours, and more. To find out more, visit artsgowanus.org or visitmanpodcast.com, where we'll have links to Arts Gowanus and to all of the Open Studios events. Abby Subak, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the top. What is Gowanus Open Studios? Gowanus Open Studios is an annual event every October. It takes place in the neighborhood of Gowanus, which is in Brooklyn, New York, uh, which is part of the city of New York. And during the open, Gowanus is a neighborhood, a lot of manufacturing and warehouses, and a lot of those warehouses now have artists in them. And during the Open Studios weekend, the artists in their studios, where they're actually making their work, invite the public to come into their studios and see their process, see their artwork, meet the artists, talk to the artists about what they do. It's between noon and 6 p.m. on both Saturday and Sunday, and it's a free event. Public is welcome to come to the neighborhood and pick up a map and wander around the neighborhood and explore these artist buildings and meet artists and talk about art. So these open studios weekends or events or however we define the, you know, however the different places define the limits of the event have really taken off in, in recent years in cities across the United States, Los Angeles, Chicago, Detroit, and of course, a bunch of them in New York. In terms of your event and, and your engagement or your, your encouraging of engagement between artists and the public with this kind of event, how far back do you go and what started it? So our, the Gowanus Open Studios event, which has been through several different names over the years, began, this is our 19th annual event. So it began in the late 90s, <laughs> mid 90s, if we do our math correctly. And it was a group of artists who were together in one building, their studios, all neighbors, who said, let's pull together and let's invite our friends to come over. We all have friends who are saying, what is your artwork like? Or a friend who comes in and says, wow, I wish I'd seen this before. So let's just have a party and invite all our friends. So the first year it was a handful of people in one building. And then over the years, it spreads. And in a community like Gowanus that has so many artists in it, pretty quickly it became a neighborhood-wide event where the artists are joining together, pooling a little bit money from each artist, registering and printing up a map and doing our best to reach out to our friends, neighbors, and colleagues to come out and see our artwork. Over the years, it's become, it's grown. Although the past three years in Gowanus, we've really taken it to a new level, doing a lot more outreach and a professionalizing the organization of it a bit and bringing more people in and more artists in. So this year we have over 300 artists participating. At your founding or at some point over the course of the last 19 years, was there a conscious positioning of of your Open Studios event or maybe somebody else's as an alternative to the commercial gallery oriented 
purchasing system? I think that's always been part of the vision of an Open Studios event is, you know, and I would say even for 19 years is artists sometimes get frustrated with that process or they're not getting the representation that they would like from a gallery or needing to somehow crack into that gallery world to sell your artwork. I think it's absolutely in response and artists just taking back into their own control their communication and their contact with their audience and with potential art collectors and art appreciators. For us, you know, I think when I started to organize Guanas Open Studios about three years ago, it was really a big part of what we wanted to do. We wanted artists to feel comfortable talking directly to art lovers and art appreciators. And we wanted art appreciators and art curious people to come out and really kind of pull back that curtain that often feels like there is if you're in a gallery or in a museum, pull back that curtain and really meet the artists, the people who are making this art. I think that that is something that can get lost in our love of museums and big institutions, which I think are very important to America's cultural and our world's cultural existence and cultural identity. I also think we can't forget that there is no art if you don't have artists. And to really get behind, pull the back of that curtain, come into a studio, meet artists who are making the work and engage with them around their conversations is a completely different way for a person to engage with artwork. People versus product. Exactly. And there's a whole energy and enthusiasm and way to experience that process that is really invigorating for a lot of the audience members. It's kind of a, a comparison that's hard to miss this coming weekend. We are taping this on, on Wednesday, Wednesday, October 14th. And the weekend that this show goes out is the weekend during which one of the biggest art fairs in, in, in the world is, is held in London. Do open studios events, yours included, consciously or subconsciously position themselves vis-a-vis art fairs, you know, floating shopping malls that they are as 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 an other as 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 something 180 degrees diametrically opposed to or different from you know it's interesting because we work with artists so artists have this two-pronged probably multi-pronged approach but on one hand an artist would love to be part of what we consider the art world and this establishment and be have galleries and museums clamoring after your artwork. Who wouldn't want that type of affirmation and financial success that comes with that? At the same time, I think that open studios do break that pattern and really say your art to the artist, your artwork is valuable because you've made it and you have a process and you are saying something about the world through your artwork and to the audience that there are so many artists out there And it's a real democratization of the process. I love to bring audience members in who are nervous or don't really know where to start or think, how do I know if this artwork is actually good or not? If a curator hasn't told me that or a museum hasn't told me that or an art historian hasn't told me that. And I love having those kind of visitors come through. And after you've looked at 10 studios, certainly if you look at 20 studios, you have sense. You know what you like and what artwork means something to you as a visitor, as an art viewer. And 
you know, I'm a true populist and believer that we each have that power in us and don't need to have it determined for us either as artists or as a visitor and art viewer. So yes, we at Arts Gowanus and Gowanus Open Studios really believe in that direct connection between the artist and the art appreciator and intentionally position ourselves that way. Now, do we schedule our event intentionally to coincide right. with London? No. <laughs> no, I'm, no, I didn't mean to suggest that. I know that's, I know that's coincidental, although there's probably an art fair somewhere on the planet every fourth day at this point. You know, point, that so. is what we have said. <laughs> you know, it, as we have organized other events, you know, and people will say, but it's this, it's like, right, we're going to do what we do and our audience will come out. <laughs> So as I as I mentioned at the top, there are open studios events in in cities all over America. Is there any kind of ad hoc or more formal national network of y'all? There is not, and I would love to start one. I would love to have the organizers of all of the New York City open studios. Sometimes they're neighborhood based. Sometimes they're based in a particular building. Come together. I would love to do it across the country. I think part of the reason I would I would think part of the reason that there is not one is because most of these are run by volunteers and it's an inordinate amount of energy and time and hours that go into making this type of event happen that probably the thought of then getting together to talk about it just feels like an extra effort or who's going to be the one to organize it but maybe we will because as as an historian I think about how in the years to come future historians will take textual note of, 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 of these events and, and of the people who participated in them and the role that they've played in not just building community, but in building relationships between artists and the work those artists do. And of course, art fairs and, and art dealers, you know, their papers and their archives inevitably end up not inevitably, quite often end up in, in archives, whether it's the Archives of American Art or the Getty Research Institute or where have you. And so I, I, if open studios events are indeed emerging as a, a, an alternative to arts fair, art fairs in many ways, how should we consider historicizing them and what you do? That is a really interesting question. I think as the organizer of an open studios, I live so much in the contemporary moment in what's happening today, tomorrow, and this weekend. I do think that there are indicators of what's happening broadly, culturally, societally. I think that these open studios are an indicator of a lot of the democratization that has happened. I don't see a direct connection to the internet, but I think the way the internet has broken down publishing and given such direct access to everything from shopping to viewing art to what we're reading news-wise or literature-wise, I think there's a similar mentality between an open studios where people are willing to have that direct unmediated conversation. So I think it fits into, I think the idea of open studios and the practice of open studios does fit into our broader cultural shifts that are happening. No, well, I mean, I think they also, I mean, you know, I think what, what I thought you were going to say is that they also fit into shifts within cities and metropolitan areas. And of course, we see that in New York going back a generation or two. There was no, so far as I know, Soho Open Studios, a formal kind of event. But art historians and curators are, you know, frequently scrambled to figure out 
kind of where everybody was in, in you know, 1964 or what have you, uh, and how those relationships impacted the work of other artists who were in the same building, say Agnes Martin over over Coenty's Slip or, or Carl Andre and Soho. I do think that the building of these connections amongst artists has a huge impact. I will say that when I started organizing the open studios three years ago, one of the biggest requests of the artists was how can we get to see each other's work? Because when an organization was only about open studios, the artists spent the whole weekend in their own individual studios. Sometimes a visitor might come through and say, oh, you should see this other artist on the next floor down because their work relates to yours in some way, or you might find it interesting. And that artist would never find the time to get down because you're wanting to be in the studio representing your artwork and meeting the visitors coming through. So one of the things we did over the past three years as we reinvented our organization is really focus on that network and that community building amongst the artists and then also tying back into the community and being having the artists connected to the other small businesses and the other residents in the community and the other larger businesses in the community and have the community feel ownership of this arts community and of artists also. So I think that is really important. The other piece that I do feel like it fits into that you're getting at a little bit is this pendulum swinging back and forth. So if New York in the 60s was crazy and unregulated and unruly and you had the Warhols and the parties and whatever was happening in Soho, then it starts to swing and completely be owned and appropriated or by larger institutions. And then you have the artists who are still the people on the ground making the artwork trying to reappropriate it, take it back for themselves. And I feel like that might be a swing back towards that. Yet an open studios does tend to be an organized event, does tend to have, you know, be professionalized to some degree or another. So it's not totally back to the free roaming mayhem, but somewhere perhaps in the middle that is still benefiting the artists pretty directly. Excellent. Abby Subak, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. I hope everybody will come out to Gowanus Open Studios in Brooklyn this weekend. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.